Hello and welcome again to the Marvin Tila podcast. This time I had the pleasure of speaking with Lewis Rudner, an excellent upright and electric bass player with both bachelor's and master's degrees from Michigan State University, where he studied extensively with Rodney Whitaker. Lewis is a fascinating person and an extremely talented musician with a plethora of humorous stories, which I'm excited to present here. Yeah, I didn't realize when you reached out to me that you were you because I had met you like a year or two ago, I think, really briefly. Yeah, yeah, we, we've like come across each other. Yeah, I busted your balls for not smiling at big band rehearsal <laughs> or something like that. You were in the Vic High band, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I was like, man, I know you're over it and you're done with this music, but sell sell it, please. <laughs> Sorry. I had to say something. MD was standing right there. <laughs> yeah, no, that was hilarious. Um, yeah, I had a whole fallout with them too. It wasn't oh, very before that or after that. After that, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, that's how things go but, sometimes. I don't know any advice with dealing with music that you have to do over and over and over. Hey, man, I did that for three years on the cruise ship, and uh, it's tough. It's a mental challenge, uh, and an emotional challenge, and a physical challenge sometimes. Because if your body just is done with it, and your mind's done with it, and you don't want to get fired for whatever reason, you got to figure out a way. Um, yeah. So you, you make games, right? You make up games for yourself. So like, I'm going to play this line perfectly in a different fingering every time we play this tune or something like that. I'm going to find, but take like a concept, just isolate, right? Like give yourself rules or like I'm an upright player mostly. So for me, I can just focus on intonation or I'll just play it in this position and see if I can play the whole song in a weird position without moving. Right. Right. Or I'm only, I'm not going to play a single fill for this song. Or I'm going to play one fill and pick your spot before you start the tune. Like on the last, going into the last chorus, I'm going to make a moment happen. That'll be the only time I feel it. It's going to be the killingest spot in the song. <laughs> yeah. So I guess you're finding like new ways to approach it that can help you get better. Like you take the same material, but then find more and more ways to improve using it. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're practicing, you're working on yourself you're keeping yourself mentally entertained. You know, you're going to the gym on the bandstand, you're working out, right? Because if you don't and you just start getting sour and stale on the music, it's not going to go good. You know how, you know what that feels like? It feels like you're dying inside, right? (laughs) It sucks your soul out through your behind. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, No, it's freaking (laughs) brutal, man. And it'll kill you. It'll destroy your desire to play music for a while. Like, we came back from a six. I mean, I work with my wife in a trio, you know, mm-hmm. we did the ship. We, the longest contract we did was six months. Wow. And it was seven days a week, five sets a night. No, no day off in six months, <sighs> five sets. And a lot of it was ballroom dance music, which I really do not care for. How long are these sets or, uh, it was four 45 minute sets and one hour set. Wow. So, I think that's like four hours total of music per day, but then you got to talk to people in your break. Cause it's a lounge gig, right? So you're just on for a lot of hours and it, it's, and some of the, especially the ballroom people, the ones that are worse dancers are more demanding and more likely to tell you that you're not doing it right. Even though they're the ones that are fucking up. Right. So it's like personality clashes. Um, but yeah. So after we came back from that, even though we were all trying all these things to keep ourselves entertained in the band said there was politics that happened with the drummer and Ashley didn't want to touch the piano for like a year afterward. Wow. We had all these gigs lined up that we needed to play. So you just make it happen. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but now, so, you know, 
things are repaired for the most part and we're moving on with life, which is great. Sorry. What were you going to say? <laughs> so six months on the cruise ship, like where, where is this cruise ship going? And um, that one. So she had worked with the, the ships a while before I joined up and then we were able to pick which ships went where and plot where we wanted to go. Oh, that was the Volendam. And that one, we got on it in the fall, I want to say, and it starts out, it was doing an Alaskan summer season. And then at the end of that season, once the, once the weather turns and they shut down in about September, it started crossing over. Um, it did. I think that's the Aleutian Islands, that tip of Alaska that hangs way out towards Russia. Did a couple mm-hmm. stops there, and then it went down the side of Japan, China, Korea. It was actually, North Korea was shooting missiles towards, you know, across Japan while we were going towards Japan. I remember and then, that summer, yeah. <laughs> right, and then China... Um, and South Korea were having disagreements. So we actually had, you know, Sean Drabbit? Yes. Right. So he moved to Inchon with his wife, um, Unhi. And um, we had this sweet overnight port stopped in Inchon planned. And we were all going to hang out after our set. Like we get done at 11. We we're going to take the train into Seoul because it's like 24 hour nonstop. And then China had said, well, if you go to Korea, you can't come here. So we had to cancel the Korea ports. Uh. But yeah, China and then. Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, and then I think we ended up in, um, what's that nation state down there? It's like a country and a city. Singapore? Uh, Singapore. Yeah, Singapore. That's the one. So then we flew home from there. Wow. That sounds like a crazy experience. It was cool. It was awesome, except for, uh, you know, the six months of no days off and hating music at the end. (laughs) Let's let's back up a little bit to um I always like to ask guests how they initially got into the arts or music. Do you, how did this all kind of start for you? Um well like from the very very beginning? Sure, sure, if you don't mind. Yeah. Okay, yeah, totally. Um so I guess my mom played a little bit of guitar and piano and sang and mm-hmm. um you know did the whole like put the headphones on the womb and stuff as kids and then she gave my sister <laughs> piano lessons. And try to give me piano lessons, but I got totally corrupted at a young age. Um, our neighbors had an uncle that came over at a house party when I was a little kid. And my mom was trying to teach us like Twinkle Twinkle had a little star, right? Yeah. And that was whatever. I was an ADD four-year-old and I didn't want to have that. It wasn't what I was looking for. And then Uncle Grant came over and played Boogie Woogie at a party. I was like, holy shit, mom, I want to do that. And Uncle Grant was a total alcoholic and lived with the crazy cat lady and everything smelled like pee. So I wasn't allowed to hang out with Uncle Grant. So no boogie woogie lessons happened for me. Um, Strike out number one, right? Mm. And then my sister got a violin so she could go play in the school orchestra. And they started doing like fiddle music. In Michigan, where I grew up, there's a big fiddle music tradition. They'll do like Appalachian tunes. There's a big Irish tune scene, like traditional Irish, traditional Scottish. All that stuff is kind of big big deal there um they have mm-hmm. big fiddle ensembles kind of like calgary fiddlers there's a big ensemble in calgary that does that that would tour to michigan and there's kind of a similar tradition um so i started playing violin because i was jealous because she was getting all the attention okay so did fiddle tune music for a while went to a couple camps in like nashville and sort of soaked that up and then i heard somebody quote a rock tune at a bluegrass concert and i said that's way cooler. That sounds like that stuff that Uncle Grant was playing on the piano. They quoted um, Sunshine of Your Love on a mandolin. And then the whole band was like, oh, that was cool, and followed it and then went back to, you know, ding-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling, you know, Bluegrass Town. 
And then uh, my dad was like, oh, kid, let me tell you. So my mom made him get rid of his records when they got married because they didn't have space. And he was a a rock hippie. He went to Woodstock. But he's he's like, doesn't look like a hippie. He doesn't think like a hippie. But he was there for like Cream's first U.S. tour. He went to their show in Detroit. Um, So he started feeding me Jimi Hendrix records and Cream records and Santana records. And then we found a bass teacher um because i decided i wanted to play upright bass but they didn't want to put that in the house so we got an electric bass um and i started playing rock music with my friends and then my bass teacher dave sharp i saw him play a gig but he played it on upright and it was a jazz thing i was like oh what that's cool what's that what's going on tell me how does this work and then he he actually um I don't think he wanted to teach me because he raised the price of the lessons to discourage us from doing upright bass jazz lessons. <laughs> and then he lowered it later a couple of years. It was pretty funny. Don't tell, don't repeat that one. Okay. <laughs> Cause he's a nice guy. He's great. And he actually just, he has, um, he just started a jazz club in Ann Arbor and they haven't had a jazz club for years. The blue llama and they're doing, they have a really nice streaming setup. Oh, super cool. want to see some more free. I mean, everybody's streaming and we all right, right. hate that it's not the real thing, but it's pretty good that we can get a concert to our living room for free. No, I'll definitely check that out. I'm pretty curious about that. Um, yeah, the Blue Llama. They've got some great players. A lot of people from Detroit are getting pulled up, and then Ann Arbor's got a strong scene. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I started taking lessons from him, and then he wasn't mean enough because I was like 15 at the time, and I needed somebody to kick my butt. Right. <laughs> so, I, uh, and I decided I didn't want to sit in a cubicle and work a day job, so my dad was bugging me and telling me I had to go to college somewhere. And I was like, okay, I'll go to music school. Sweet. <laughs> that sounds like a great way to stick it to the man. Um, so I found another teacher, Kurt Kronke, another great bass player out of Ann Arbor. And he had done the music school thing. So he was kind of more along the lines of what I was looking for. And then in high school, I was still playing violin and viola in the orchestra all the way to the end. Um, but that was sort of secondary to like rock and metal and funk and learning, trying to figure out what the hell was going on with jazz. Cause I, wasn't there yet i didn't have like a jazz teacher because dave sharp's good but he's more like world music kind of focused he does play some jazz but he didn't have like a formal education in it mm-hmm. um like i think his one of his bigger gigs he did up to that point had been playing with the melvins Do you know who the melvins are yeah 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 right not a jazz band at all uh <laughs> exactly so but he, he's a good player um anyway so i went to find you know, I, and I took some classical bass lessons for like a semester to check it out, which was cool, but I just didn't have time to pursue it. Mm-hmm. Um, so primarily on the electric bass then, and then more sort of rock and funk influence at the time. And- yeah, totally. I had like a couple heavy rock bands and funk bands and stuff. Uh, okay. And then I started prepping to go to music school. And then uh, they, they screwed up with the admi- admission. So I had to wait a year, even though I got in. Um, what do you mean they screwed up or they let so i applied to like five or six schools and then i got into a couple of them and then michigan state uh u of m is arguably a much better school just because they have higher like regulations to get in and it's more academically strenuous but it's in ann arbor and my dad works downtown and he's a micromanager so i knew i'd go insane if i even if i went there (laughs) um so msu's down the road by about an hour and it's a bit cheaper and a little more relaxed. It's more of a party school. I was like, all right, that sounds like I can I can do that. And they took me to see the bass professor there play in Detroit. It was Rodney Whitaker. It was a professor of jazz at MSU with Kenny Garrett in Detroit. And I heard Rodney playing quarter notes. I was like, well, 
that doesn't sound like Dave Sharp's quarter notes. That sounds totally different. And <laughs> I like it. Why do I like a quarter note? There's something very different about what's going on here than what I was checking out before. Because before I was like, Victor Wooten, I got to play all this stuff. I got to do all these licks and these. I got to be virtuosic, right? Mm-hmm. Rodney's not, he's, he's virtuosic in his own way, but his thing is he has this big, gigantic quarter note that just makes the room light up. It makes people smile. They get this big stupid grin. It's just him in a room playing a quarter note and like kids just go. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's kind of powerful. You could do something so simple and totally affect people with it, you know, in a great way. So then I ended up going to study with him. Mm, yeah. And so I, and then he doesn't teach electric. So I had to play all upright. And so that sort of rearranged my priorities. And I was still playing electric bass in like cover bands. And I, I got like a, a jam band and like a rock metal piano trio and a few, you know, I had a bunch of bands in, in college and played in the blues scene and stuff. So did he kind of introduce you to all like the classic jazz records and did you kind of get more ensconced with that whole thing? He started it. He didn't really cram it down my throat. I think he thought that I knew more than I did when I showed up. Because he asked me, like, man, who it was at studio class. Um, and so this is all the bass players sitting together. And um, it's like, who, okay, go around the room. Who's your favorite bass player? I was like, I like Victor Wooten. Like, upright bass players, the upright bass program, man. Come on. <laughs> like, uh, the guy from the Bad Plus. Like, I didn't know his name. I didn't know that thing where jazz musicians or whoever, you go check out a player and you follow, you check out every record they did. You see how they play in this setting. You see what they sound like when they're soloing on a standard, you see what they sound like in odd meter situations. You know, I didn't get that whole, no one ever told me you should pick a guy or a girl and follow them through their career and see what they sounded like. What is a human being's approach? Not like, okay, there's a cool lick. That's a cool lick. This is a nice groove. Like go check out a a human being. Right. Right. And check out an approach to music. Right. Yeah. That's sort of when it clicked, I was like, Oh, I got to get my shit together because I, this is a whole nother world that I just don't know about. I don't know. I've heard of Ray Brown. That's about it. Like I didn't know who Paul Chambers was. I didn't know who Oscar Pettiford was. I didn't know any guy. I didn't, I didn't know the name of the guy from the bad plus. He was just the guy from the bad, the bad plus, you know? Mm-hmm. So that sort of totally flipped a switch in my brain. And then Dave Sharp kind of, <laughs> People like people want to be nice by being a little bit vague and giving people some some room to play around with. But he gave me enough rope to hang myself. He said, "Go get some Monk, go get some Mingus, and go get some Miles." When I was asking Dave Sharp in high school what records I should buy to check out jazz, so I got Monk, Genius of Modern Music, Volume Two, which is a great record. But my favorite tune on there was Four and One, which no one fucking plays that song because it's impossible. It's like a whole tone scale played at quadruple time. Cool. That's a melody. That's exciting. Okay. Strike one. No one plays that tune. The second record I got was Mingus, Black Saint, and the Sinner Lady. Have you heard that record? Yeah, yeah. It's a nine-piece band playing a, a through-composed ballet. Beautiful. Groundbreaking. Does not teach you how to play with other jazz players at all. <laughs> and then the other record I got was Miles Davis, Water Babies, which is like, have you heard that record? No, I haven't heard that one. Second quintet, it's kind of like quasi-free and then some funk tracks that are pretty weak sound. Like by if you're studying like Victor Wooten kind of funk and Marcus Miller, it sounds weak as hell. 
Okay. Because you don't have the con- the the context of being like, okay, this is Miles Davis. Like this is like the fifth time he's reinvented the wheel, and now he's kind of inventing funk right now by also playing free jazz at the same time. And so I hated Miles Davis for about the next five years until I got to school and everybody was like, you don't know any of these miles. You, you don't have kind of blue. You know, <laughs> I, I got horrendously misguided. So that was like a total sidetrack. But when I got to college, I started, it was actually the other students a lot of times that would be telling me what to listen to. And Rodney gave me transcriptions to work on and bass players to listen to and be like, all right, we're checking out Paul Chambers. We're checking out Oscar Pettiford right now. Yeah, those three records that you got, were you confused upon a first impression or were you like immediately taken by it? What kind of reaction did you have initially? The Mingus one blew my freaking doors off, man. I was in love with it. And I thought that's what I was going to go do when I went to jazz school. I was like, I'm going to figure this out. And then I got there and I realized no one has figured that out because no one knows what the hell was going on in that record session. (laughs) And there's like tape cuts and all kinds of stuff. Um, So that, that totally rocked my world. The Monk record, I liked the melodies, but once the solos hit, it was too abstract and I had no idea what was going on. Yeah. Um, I was a jam band head at that point. I could hear two chord jams. I could hear like a Santana jam. That was about where my ears were at. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like getting into prog rock and dream theater and stuff, wow. which is a little more, was easier to grasp with like a classical music understanding because the way they compose riffs, it's just a lot more consonant. You're like, okay, they're doing this thing. But with jazz, it's just a little bit more, especially like 60s stuff when they back off a little bit. And then the Miles Davis record, I just straight up hated it. There was nothing about that record I like. I like the cover art. That's why I bought that record. It was like, oh, there's 55 Miles Davis records at this bookstore. I got to pick one because my dad says I can get three CDs right now. <laughs> and so I picked that one because it had an interesting cover. <laughs> and it was just totally alienated. Alien. It's so funny how kind of like directionless people can end up into the thing. You know, you just kind of wander around and suddenly you're like all in it. And <laughs> yeah, you're like, oh, Jesus, this is deep. This is a lot, you know. <laughs> and then maybe it turns you off. Maybe you never play music again because you picked up the wrong record. I don't know, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, how did you then get more into the, I guess, the sort of traditional or like straight ahead jazz and all that, like learning the canon, I guess? Uh, by wanting to not suck at school because I had all these okay. friends like, like my improv class it was two bass players one of which like was way far ahead of me because he had a jazz band in high school mm. and there wasn't a jazz program in my high school there was like after school thing but there was already a bass player or two in it so I was like okay I'm never going to get to play I can go be the only bass player in all these other bands so screw that mm. little did I know I was screwing myself um and then, yeah, I had these three horn players that were total beasts. Like they were on a professional level when they got there as freshmen. It was um, Marcus Miller. Marcus Elliott is what he goes by on Facebook. He's a great tenor player in Detroit. Does a lot of like new music and improvised stuff and even 12-tone compositions. He's doing a lot of exploration. Um, this guy, Anthony Stanko, who's now a professor of trumpet at Ohio State University. Mm-hmm. And then... Peter Nelson, who's a trombonist in New York. He plays a lot of tuba. He was touring a lot prior to the world ending. Um, but they were really inspiring. I was like, holy shit. Like, well, it was intimidating, actually, is what it was. Sure. It was like, I have no idea what's going on. These guys sound like pros already, and they're picking up stuff. And I came in uh, in January 
So I came in halfway through the year because it's all, you know, like it's a four year program that goes, you know, fall, spring, fall, spring. And so I came in at January because the admission fuck up with the university. And so I came in like halfway through this craziness and didn't understand what was going on. And then um, it was sort of raggedy because like a lot of the pianists dropped out because there was some turnover in the piano teacher thing. And I was just trying to get a grip. So I ended up going to the older students to try to learn stuff and figure out how to play and who to play with and what to listen to. Um, and I would be like, give me a record to listen to. Tell me what you're checking out. Like, why, like, what are you working on right now? And what should I be working on right now? I would try to, I would, I would attack people in their practice rooms. I'd be like, all right, man, Hey, uh, can you take five minutes and play a tune with me? I just want to play one tune. And then after we were done playing a tune, I'd be like, Hey, what should I work on? You know? And, you know, it took me a while to get to that point to where I realized I needed to get to that point. Cause I spent the first year, just working on being able to play the bass because I went down and actually auditioned for my professor to be in the 11th or 12th grade before I really knew who he was, before I had gone to that show and seen Rodney play. And I don't know if I didn't read the audition requirements or what, but he said, play me. It was the last audition of the day. It was like 1130 at night. He'd been there since six in the morning. He was exhausted. He's like, play me two octaves C major scale. (laughs) I'd only practiced one octave i never done the second octave so i was like fell off the bass because i didn't know how to play in thumb position yet right uh so then i got there and i had to you know get the technical aspect out of the way so i kind of spent the first year just doing technique and learning basic stuff and suffering through combos with all the players like we're like non-preference majors or people that you know, weren't in the music school, but just wanted to play some music. Um, but then after, you know, really bashing my head against it and picking people's brains for a while, I started getting the idea, oh, go to people that sound good already and try to use their ears to tell you what you suck at. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> so that's where, like, somebody was like, go learn Miles Davis walking, working, steaming, relaxing, and then you can play, you'll have an approach to play tunes with people. And it took me till I was a senior in undergrad to figure out, like to actually start digging into all that stuff. Be like, oh, cool. This is an approach for bass lines in this context. This makes mm-hmm. sense. These are pedal. This is like, this is how and when to apply a pedal. This is how and when to apply a, a, a turnaround at the end of a, you know, an open turnaround at the end of a, a solo section or whatever, you know, to be able to like get a mental grip on the toolbox of that like 50s bop, let's play tunes at a jam session kind of thing. Yeah, so uh, were uh, was there just a choice of sort of performance and composition, or like what kind of major were you intending to? Um, so for MSU, I think there's just a jazz studies degree, and then it's all performance and whatever your instrument is. They don't have like a jazz based education degree like um, some of the Canadian schools have. Yeah. So, uh, was your plan to just kind of go into like jazz performance then after college, like playing shows and? Yeah. Know? Well, actually, my plan was never to make it out of college. My plan was um, go as hard as you can in music school, get burnt out on music, and then pursue uh, pharmacy, do a pharmacy degree and make money. That That was the plan? (laughs) That was my plan. I was a very existentially troubled 18-year-old, 17-year-old when I was making decisions. (laughs) I was like, all right, I don't want to have no health care and have my teeth fall out when I'm 50 because that's like a lot of musicians. There's no socialized health care in America, right? And it's expensive. 
Um, so a lot of musicians just can't afford proper healthcare. Uh, so I was kind of like, you know, I don't know if I really want that life. That sounds really hard with very low reward. Sounds like it sucks actually, but I love music and emotionally I can't really exist without playing music all the time right now. Like this is me clinging to the planet. Um, so I'm going to give it all I can because Dave Sharp, I think at one point offhandedly mentioned that he sort of regretted never going to music school because he went and studied philosophy and then took bass lessons on the side. Mm. Right. And so I was like, well, I don't want to regret not trying. So I'm going to try and I'm good at chemistry. So that's my backup plan. When I flunk out of music school or get burnt out, I'll go study chemistry and make money and have a comfortable life and play music on the side. So and that- I, I screwed up. I never got burnt out. Yeah. Yeah. That didn't end up happening. No. So I even took what went wrong. <laughs> well, at one point I was getting burnt out and deciding that my life sucked And so I started taking chemistry classes Mm -hmm. uh, in the summer to like prepare for a pre-pharmacy degree. And then I was doing eight hours a day of chemistry because it was an accelerated program. It was like a, you know, a five or seven week course that was supposed to be a 15 week course, right? You compress it and then it gets really intense. I was doing chemistry eight hours a day, then trying to practice afterward or before. And I just didn't have the mental or physical capacity to do either one well at this, like concurrently. So it was like, okay, I got to pick one. I'm just going to do music because I got to just keep going. I'll go insane if I try to do chemistry right now. It'll kill me. (laughs) So I uh, dropped that and kept going with music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's definitely, I think a lot of creative people, it's almost, I mean, it's not a curse, but in some sense, like you have to do it or else you just kind of shrivel up and, you know, decay. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally understand that. And so then you continued on with music. Uh, I guess you finished your bachelor's in mm-hmm. yep. performance. And then what was, uh, what happened after that? Or um, Well, in the senior year, uh, going into senior year, I was like really excited to have all this time to practice and finally be getting a grip on stuff and starting to gig with people and make some money. Yeah. And then my Rodney was like, man, you got to apply to grad school. I was like, I don't want to go to school. I'm so done with school. I've been in school for five years. This has been almost hell, but great. But I'm done with school right now. And he's like, man, just apply and it'll make you push harder. Right. It'll be the final push for this year. You won't get lazy. I was like, OK, sure. That's I, I agree with that logic. I need something to push against. You know, that's, I couldn't, I didn't improve in high school more because I, my teacher wasn't mean enough. I didn't have somebody to push against. Right. 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 So I can agree with this logic. Let's do this. So I applied to a bunch of schools and then I went and auditioned at two auditioned at Eastman and UT Austin. And that was fun, but you know, like I didn't really like the professors were cool. Austin is a great city, but I went down the, the, actually the grad student that taught my first ensemble. It was a big band at Michigan state. When I first got there as a non-pref major was doing a doctorate there. So I slept on his couch and went to his gig the night before my audition. He was like, yeah, you know, this is the, this is kind of the one club in town. I was like, Oh, there's only one club that plays jazz in town. That's kind of Mm -hmm. like, yeah. And then like, it's kind of commercial on the weekends. We only play like jazz stuff, like kind of during the week. I was like, Oh, wow. Austin's like the music capital of America and they have one club that plays jazz Monday through Thursday. I'm not going to go live in the city. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> like I'm not even going to go to the school just to be in the city because Austin's cool, but I already had a bunch of like old school classic blues gigs back in Lansing. 
you know, I was already doing, and I played with like some folk people and still did some bluegrass stuff on the side. So I kind of was fulfilling that American roots part of my, you know, growing up that I, I had done. So I, I didn't really need more of that. Yeah. And then I went to the, uh, we went to this gig with, with my buddy that was putting me up and we got totally shithouse drunk with the band. <laughs> and my audition was at seven in the morning. I was like, Mike, this is terrible. You're totally sabotaging <laughs> me. This is awful, but whatever, who gives a shit? We're having a great time. So I get there to the audition. This is total tangent. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but uh, and I get to the audition in the morning and I'm like trying not to break this bass. This guy, Sam Panky, loaned me his bass. I'm like trying not to stumble because I'm still hung over. And I'm like walk into the audition. And I'm like, hey guys, good morning, professors. <laughs> uh, how's it going? And then like once I was able to open my eyes, I was like, you're the band from last night. You're all hung over too. So we're all... <laughs> <laughs> the guys that auditioned me were also totally shithouse drunk. Uh, and then they like, they were like, okay, well, you obviously know what you want to do. You can play the bass. You sound great. Like we can give you some money. I was like, can I get the assistantship? Cause I don't want to spend money to do this thing. I don't really want to do. They're like, well, your buddy Mike has it right now. So once he's done, you can have it in like a partial tuition waiver. I was like, no, no Austin. And then, uh, you know, like Eastman school of music, I went and auditioned there. Uh, and they were like, Oh yes, we'd like you to come. And we'll even give you, we'll give you a scholarship. We'll give you, um, you know, $5,000 per semester or per year or whatever it was. I was like, okay, well like what's the tuition again? $40,000. You're going to give me five. You're going to give me a $5,000 uh, assistantship. So I'm working for them and making five grand a year and I'm paying them 40. It was like, nah, I still don't really want to do this. And then, so I told my teacher that I was like, all right, you know, that was a good experience. Thanks for pushing me through that. I appreciate it. Now let me go prepare my recital. Did that, got out of, you know, undergrad with the unscathed. And then um, he says, well, what would you ever think about being a grad student here at Michigan state? I was like, um, what? You're not sick of me. Like I haven't been a pain in your ass for enough years. You want me to stick around? <laughs> And so he offered me the assistantship at Michigan state with a full tuition waiver. I was like, I don't want to go to grad school, but I can't really say no to a free degree that I'm going to get paid to do. Right. So I stuck around and did a, did a master's in Michigan state, which was supposed to be more education, but a lot of the education component got changed the last second and um, didn't quite happen. But I learned more about like uh, the, the system of a bit of a, a large university and how professors function in that system. And kind of the more organizational side of moving a big band around because I, I was kind of doing that and making sure the big band was getting from place to place and managing artists and stuff. So, Oh, cool. Yeah. Maybe we could talk a little bit about your practice at that point. So like in your studies, did you have a very structured kind of way of going about your practice sessions or like how, what do you normally do in your practice sessions? Yeah. Um, you're talking about then or now? Uh, I guess we could go over both or maybe things you've picked changed. Yeah. Um, well, it's always, I mean, do you play upright as well or just electric? Uh, I took lessons on upright too. Yeah. Okay, cool. So upright is just demanding in terms of physicality and, um, intonation, right? So a lot of what I do every day then, and even now is playing with a bow against a drone, right? Set your tuner to a note of either the fifth or the the root of the fifth of the, the, the key you're playing in and do like, 
a workout. Um, I wasn't doing it then, but I'm doing it now. Now I was doing similar stuff, but now I'm doing this system, a Carl flesh scale system. It's you play a scale of one octave and then you do all the different arpeggios in that octave. And then you do thirds through that octave and then you do chromatic scale through that octave. And then you do the next octave and then you do the third octave. And then at the end you link all three together and you do all that mm-hmm. stuff. Right. So it's just getting facility on the instrument. So a lot of what I do is just maintaining and, and building more facility. And Rodney was really kind of a two octave guy, but I kind of like pushing myself. So I started adding that third octave after kind of after school. School was so demanding that I didn't really have time to work on the third octave much of the instrument. So, you know, but it's a lot of doing stuff with the bow slow and then working on time. I've always been trying to make my time better. Um, So really it's a lot of time spent on fundamentals and then, you know, when I get burnt out on that, I try to, you know, rotate it. So Rodney's thing is technique, transcription, and tunes. That's how he divides. That's how he wants you to divide your time. Like do everything in, you know, three pieces. If you only have an hour to work on music, just do 20 minutes of each. Or maybe adjust your proportions a little bit, depending on what's most pressing. If you have this gig, go figure out the music for the gig, right? Yeah. Um. So, and then for a while... I was just, I realized I didn't know enough tunes. So every day I would just throw on YouTube and pick on a standard I knew of, but I didn't know, or somebody had called on a gig that I didn't know. And then I, I pull up like five or six different recordings. I do like Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald. I'd find the original if it's available. Like, you know, even if it's Guy Lombardo singing like, you know, it's like a lot of those tunes came from 1926 and 1936 and 1930. And the original versions are super hokey, but it, they're actually playing the melody properly because they're not embellishing it because it wasn't cool at that time to embellish the melody. So you want to learn the melodies correctly. So I'd throw on YouTube and I'd try to listen through it once and be able to play through the chain, like be able to play bass on it the second time through was the goal. I did that for a couple of years. Like at the end of undergrad, I was really working on that because I had a guy. Um, well, there's a lot. That's kind of an East Coast tradition. It's sort of an old school thing to do is if you're a piano player or a guitar player, you play the tune through one time on the gig. And then by the second time you play it rubato, right. Um, you know, with chords and melody, and then the bass player should be able to have it on the second pass. And that's something Rodney had talked about. And that's something that people were doing to me on gigs regularly. Um, and it's cool because it allows you to learn tunes really quick. If you can do it, it's really great. ear training. You work on everything, right. You work, you work on formulating the form in your head, as it's happening, it's a really great skill to have. And it just hot rods your ears, right? Once you're doing that all the time, your ears get super quick at picking up harmony. Oh, there's that sound I can't hear. Then it becomes a game of what's that? What, what can I not hear? Like I can hear one, four, three, six, two, five, one, you know, I can hear tritone subs. I can hear all that stuff, but there's that one sound. Oh, that one sound I can never hear. I go to the piano. Oh, it's a two, five to three. Every time I hear that sound, I know it's that sound I can't hear. It's a two, five to three. And then you start narrowing down the things you can't hear within that context. Obviously, if you sit me down and tell me to listen to Indian classical music, I'm not going to be able to tell you diddly squat. But in terms of, you know, using the cycle of force and those kind of progressions, or, I mean, it's just whatever genre you pick, right? You're just honing your your edge and narrowing down the things you don't know. Yeah, I think you, I'll actually look into that and try that out. Actually, that sounds uh, like a very good exercise to. Yeah, yeah, totally. Years. No, definitely. 